the underlying cause of failure for many startups is that the founders are afraid of discomfort. An environment where everyone is comfortable is unlikely to be an environment where personal growth and value creation is occurring. When you are in a startup, calibrating the right amount of discomfort is often about calibrating risk. What are your risks? Can you quantify them? Can you enumerate them? Multiplying out the probability of surviving each of those risks, then multiplying that number times the sum of the discounted future cash flows of your business will give you the expected value of your business. Under the right circumstances, entrepreneurship has much higher expected value than a stable engineering job. The important difference is variance. Your business needs to be able to withstand the variance that bad luck can provide. And entrepreneurs themselves need to be able to withstand the variance implied by the fact that their business can completely fail and go to zero. And it's really that variance that is the source of so much discomfort. Leo Polovets is a partner with Sousa Ventures. He worked as an early engineer at LinkedIn, Google, and Factual, and he blogs at CodingVC. That's at CodingVC.com. In this episode, we talked about the proper mindset for founding a company, how to think about risk, mistakes, discomfort, and finances. If you like this episode, we've done many other shows with venture capitalists, including Chris Dixon and Tomas Tungus. You can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS to easily find all of our old episodes and discover new topics that might interest you. If you want to contribute to the Software Engineering Daily app ecosystem, you can go to github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We've got several different projects. We've got a recommendation system, we've got the iOS app, we've got an Android app, and we've got a web front end, all of which could use your help if you're interested in creating a better Software Engineering Daily ecosystem. We want to create and organize technical content about software, and we could use your help. So with that, let's get on with this episode, an interview with Leo Polovets. Leo Polovets is a partner at Sousa Ventures. Leo, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. We're going to talk about a lot of different things today. I want to start with a high-level question about venture capital and technology startups, and that's the question of cyclicality. So Silicon Valley is often referred to as a place where there is cyclical patterns of investment. When the capital markets are great, a lot of investment goes into startups. When the capital markets are not so great, not so much investment goes in. And I'm wondering how much of that is still true, because the cost of starting a company has gone down dramatically, largely due to AWS and other cloud providers. And so there's not as much upfront capital cost to building a technology company. So I'm wondering to what degree cyclicality still exists in the technology startup landscape. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree with you. I think the costs have come down a lot over the last few years. And as a result, I think what's happened is there's still cyclicality later stage. So when you're talking about like the Series C or Series B investors, you know, like if, if they've tightened their, their belts, then it's much harder to raise those rounds. And then I think the companies at those stages have a harder time. I think at seed stage, you know, a lot of times you might just need a couple hundred grand to start a company or maybe even less, whereas, you know, five, 10 years ago, maybe you needed 3 million or 5 million. 
And so companies can often find that kind of capital through friends, family, like angel investors. So I think that part is getting a lot less cyclical where there's just always kind of like angel capital around at that stage. Mm-hmm. You worked at LinkedIn early on, and then you helped build a company called Factual. Tell me about your experiences building these companies and how that has impacted your perspective as a VC. I think I learned a lot of valuable lessons at both companies. So both of them, I was pretty fortunate. I was at each company at kind of like the 15 to 50 person stage. And at LinkedIn, a couple of the things I learned are, so one was kind of counterintuitive to me. I didn't know anything about startups when I joined. This is like back in 2003. I'd heard a lot about how startups have, you know, these crazy work weeks. And I remember talking to the co-founders and, and asking them, like, you know, like, what are the work hours like? And, and actually told me that, you know, they had a lot of good work-life balance. It would be kind of like a 40, 50-hour week job. And it was. And so I was really surprised that I think today there's kind of this mantra of, like, you know, you got to be working 100-hour weeks. You got to be, like, you know, like no family life, nothing outside of work. And I think, you know... It's harder if you spend less time on your job, but I think you can succeed even with like a reasonable schedule. And I think LinkedIn showed that to me. I think a couple of other things I saw there that were really valuable is they really used A-B testing heavily in the early days. And it was just amazing to see the differences where, you know, you try some invite message. And this is back in the days where people didn't know what social networks were. And so like we kind of had to explain to people like, you know, what's a social network? Why should you sign up? Like, what is this invite? And the differences between like the best and worst invites would be, you know, like 5% versus 15 or 20%. And it was amazing that you could, you could basically like without improving the product and just changing the text a little bit, you could have like a 3x or 4x improvement. Mm. I would say the last thing I've learned, although I've kind of learned this since leaving there, is the value of like a competitive moat is just really, really high. Mm. And, you know, competitive moat, when I say that, what I mean is like kind of a sustainable competitive advantage. So that's kind of what my seed fund focuses on. These are usually things like, network effects, economies of scale, maybe proprietary data. And I think when you have one of those things, like a lot of times it gives you a lot of flexibility as you build your business. And so we see this with LinkedIn today where, you know, a lot of people aren't happy with the product, but it's still like so, so dominant and there's no one close to unseating it because like the network effects are so strong. Mm -hmm. So that was a really valuable lesson for me. Mm -hmm. And in, in terms of working at Factual, so Factual, people are not familiar with is a location data platform. So they aggregate listings on businesses. So like, you know, the cafe next door or the vet next door, they aggregate that data from across the web, they clean it up, they dedupe it, and then they'll go sell it to both ad tech companies who want to use that data for targeting or mobile apps that want to show you places nearby. I think the biggest thing I learned there is, you know, it's really important to launch fast. So I think Factual was really well funded from the early days. And as a result, it, you know, it took a while to launch our first product. And I think we spent a while on it and like the technology was amazing. The software was amazing. And then when we launched it to market, the market was kind of like, eh, you know, like this is nice, but you know, you, you, we basically built tools for people to curate clean data sets. And what the market said is like, these tools are nice, but what we really want is clean data sets. And so we don't want to pay for the tools, but if you use them to like build these data sets yourself, we'll pay for the data. So that was, that was an interesting lesson for me. Uh, now, do you think back to that when you're sizing up how much money to invest in a company these days? Because you maybe don't want to give them, you want to give them an amount that's small enough where they still feel like they're on death ground and they have to fight to get their customers, they have to fight to get their product out the door really quickly. Yeah, I think it's a lot like, you know, kind of the Goldilocks principle where too much is not good and too little is not good. Too much money can be okay if the founder is experienced. So I think that was definitely the case with Factual, where like the CEO had a lot of experience. I think he actually did a really good job managing the money. And you know the company's still around. They're doing pretty well. 
But in general, I think it's almost like building an engineering team. Like if I have a task for you that, you know, requires five engineers, if you get four engineers, like it's kind of stressful, but you can probably do it and everyone will kind of be at the top of their game. If I give you one engineer, like you're probably screwed. And if I give you 50, like you're also probably screwed. And so I think there's sort of like a right level, which is, you know, you want it to be proportional to like what the company has to do in the next year, year and a half. And you don't want to give too much more than that or too much less than that. Mm. So when you're going to make an investment, you make pretty sure where that money is going to be allocated in terms of increasing headcount or maybe it's usually just increasing headcount, right? It's not like in technology companies is not or, or buying real estate space. It's not so much about expensive cloud services or something, right? It's usually human capital. Yeah, I'd say most of the time, most of the expenses are human capital. A little bit goes to rent, a little bit goes to cloud services or infrastructure. That can go up a little bit if maybe you're doing something with you know a lot of GPUs or a lot of cloud compute, but it's pretty unusual. But yeah, I, I, and a little bit on marketing, depending on what the startup's doing. But most of it's headcount. You have written about discomfort, that the underlying cause of failure for many companies is because founders are afraid of discomfort. And I think this applies to not just founders, but employees at big companies, pretty much, I think, well, most people in the United States, probably people who are listening to this podcast, at least, think there's probably a bias towards people who are averse to discomfort in a way that may disservice them. Why is building a startup uncomfortable? And then maybe more broadly, why is discomfort useful for engineers? Yeah, so maybe I'll tackle the second part first. I think a lot of times discomfort is useful because, you know, the right thing might not be something you're familiar with or something you've done before. And so you're kind of uncomfortable trying it. But just because you're uncomfortable, like if you don't do it, then that means you're not doing the right thing. So where I've seen this play out in startups is you know, probably a couple different categories. So one is I think people avoid discomfort just because, you know, they have a comfortable path and they're already used to it. And so they just kind of stick to it from inertia. And so on the engineering side, maybe it's like you have a framework you like and it's not the best framework for your next project or it's not the right framework for your next project, but you just use the one you already know. And sometimes that's fine. And other times, like it really bites you later. Or, you know, another another example would be maybe you hire like a few friends because you're friends with them and not because they're the right people for like the team you're trying to build. So that would be one category. Another category would be, you know, people are sometimes something's discomfortable and you just don't even want to do it, like firing somebody. And so you just don't do it. And then the problem is like everyone suffers, like the person you should have let go, the whole team, like, you know, morale, like everything. And so I think there's a lot of examples of that. And I think the last thing, and I think this applies especially to startups, but also like to founders, but also to engineers is at a startup, your role is always evolving. And so you kind of have these transitions where just as you get good at something, you have to try something else. So, you know, maybe, maybe as a CTO in the first year, you're coding a lot. And then suddenly after transition from coding to management and a lot of people, they don't like that change or they're, maybe they're not good at that change. But you kind of have to do it. Otherwise, the company can't scale up very much. And maybe another year or two later, now you're going from managing contributors to managing managers. And it's another change. And so I think people kind of deal with these kinds of transitions all the time. And you really have to step up and do them. Otherwise, like the company stalls or your project stalls. How should a leader, especially at an, at an early company, impose discomfort on the employees to ward off potential complacency? 
Yeah, so I think a lot of this is about setting aggressive deadlines where they're reachable, but they're not easy. And I think it almost goes back to this Goldilocks principle with fundraising where, you know, if a project takes a month, like maybe set a deadline that's three and a half weeks. You know, if you make it a week, like, you know, then that's just unrealistic. If you make it three months, then like, you know, people are not going to, they're going to get complacent rather than uncomfortable. So I think you want to set that aggressively. I think actually one company that did this while I worked at Google for a few years on their fraud detection team. And, and over that time, I watched Google set OKRs and I thought the way they did it was actually really elegant. They would have people set OKRs, which are these quarterly measurable goals. And they set this expectation that every quarter you should be doing something like, you know, you should be finishing 60 or 70% of your OKRs. And the expectation was if you're finishing 100%, your goals weren't ambitious enough. But if you're finishing 20%, then it's the opposite, like you overreached. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of set this expectation where, you know, we don't expect you to finish everything because we want you to be ambitious, but like you should be hitting most of your goals. And I thought that was a really nice balance. Mm -hmm. Do you do that personally? Do you set your own goals in a way where you're going to try to just accomplish 60% or 70% of them? I wish I was that organized and disciplined, but I actually don't. (laughs) What kinds of goals do you set for yourself or maybe internally at SUSE? I mean, there's kind of this high level goal, which is vague, which is like, you know, we just want to be a top seed fund. And so I think it's just kind of doing whatever I can to contribute to that. And I think, unfortunately, like the job has such such irregular time demands where there's weeks where I have like 15 hours of work and there's weeks where I have 100 hours of work yeah. that it's hard to plan things. And so I think what happens is like whenever I have free time, I'll try to, you know, do something that I think will help level up the fund. But I, I haven't been super like methodical about it. Mm. And actually talking to you makes me feel like maybe maybe I should think about that some more. <laughs> so when I think about early stage venture, it sounds like the most discomfort probably comes from turning down people who are coming to you for money. Or what, where, where's the biggest source of discomfort at a seed stage fund? I would say short term, that's the most unpleasant thing in terms of just like the actual the actual you know tasks I have to do. I think saying no to really smart, passionate people is really tough. I think for me, actually, what's harder is that there aren't really good feedback loops in venture capital. So I make an investment today and, you know, I probably won't know if it's the next, you know, Uber or Google for five or 10 years. And so what happens is for that next five or 10 years, I'm just, you know, I'm second guessing the investments I did and also second guessing the investments I didn't do mm-hmm. and wondering, like, am I actually picking well? And I think a lot of investors have this this challenge as well. And in terms of scaling up a company, so you saw a a scalable measurement of discomfort at Google. The idea that you set OKRs, objectives and key results, every quarter, and you try to set them for yourself in in a way that's ambitious enough that you're only going to be able to accomplish 60% or 70% of them. That I can think of as one source of discomfort. I can also think of Amazon as a company that seems to have a level of discomfort within the employees. I I worked there, and so I saw some of the internal policies that contributed to this. You've certainly seen the New York Times article that you know talked about the, the, the level of difficulty. But on the other hand, you've seen the power of Amazon from its ability to scale that discomfort among its employees, or at least that's one of the sources of power. What are other ways that a large company, let's say there's somebody who's a CTO at a large company and they feel like their company is moving slower than they would like to, or they feel like there's more complacency in the organization. What are ways that you can impose discomfort in a company that's at scale? So I think one potential way of doing that is to set, you know, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Mm -hmm. 
And I think if you kind of align the company around this idea of, you know, we have to bet the farm on some trend, right? Like whether it's the internet or cloud computing, or, you know, maybe it's like the direction of AR hardware. Mm. I think that can get people really... Azure. Azure is a perfect example of this. Yeah. So I, I think Microsoft's actually done this pretty well in the last few years. But I think I think if the whole company feels like, you know, they're sort of in this do or die moment and they really have to perform, I think that's a really good way to like, get people off their butts and working really hard. Obviously, there's this risk that, you know, you make that big, hairy, audacious goal and like you don't reach it or it's the wrong goal. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think it's definitely a good way to, to rally people. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm talking about discomfort at startups. So you already talked about the fact that it's often going to be uncomfortable to fire a friend or to fire somebody who was there early on and they haven't scaled up to their role. And this happens a lot. Like at five or 10 people, the company is just not the same as it was at two or three people. And perhaps there's somebody who was doing a great job at the two or three people stage, but they have not scaled to five or 10 people or maybe to a hundred people. Why does this happen so often? Yeah, so I, I haven't seen this too much in the very early stages, like when it's, you know, five or 10 people. I've definitely seen it more and more as the company grows, because I think that's where the shifts in what people are working on are more and more dramatic. I think a lot of it happens over, I mean, there are different reasons. So I think one reason is sometimes people don't like certain stages of a company. Like I wasn't a founder, but every time a company I was at hit kind of like 40, 50 people, I started feeling ants. <laughs> My cat is clawing at Leo's chair. <laughs> Every time the companies I worked at kind of hit 40, 50 people or the teams kind of hit, you know, 25, 30, I, I sort of started feeling like, okay, I need to do something smaller again. And I've met founders like this where, you know, it's literally their sixth or seventh startup and they just message it up front. Like, I really like the V1 phase. I'm going to work on this for a year and a half or two and then go find a replacement CEO. And, you know, I, I think they just sort of, they know what they like or they know what they're good at. Which is actually the second thing, which is sometimes people like a certain phase. Sometimes they're only good at a certain phase, and they know that. And so, well, talking about why this happens so often, why you have this churn at five or ten people, or you have, or you, you always have this churn at a hundred people. These people who can't scale into certain roles. Right. So, yeah, I think partly sometimes people don't want to do something. Partly they're not good at something. I think when they're not good at something like maybe for example you're moving from being an individual contributor to a manager or a director you know people will try to level up and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't and i think the truth is like you know at some point the founders have to think more about what's good for the company and the employees and the customers and everyone else and so you know it might be that you're in this tough spot where you have a friend and you know you've you've worked with them for the last few years and you don't want to end that you know the working relationship but if you know if that means that like the company might go under and you know 30 people that work for you might lose their jobs like i think that's something people have to like you know really deal with head on mm. now we've been talking at pretty high level about interpersonal aspects of startups are there discomforts that you see in the early stage that result from engineering issues too i think the biggest one i've seen is probably this tension between kind of like overbuilding or building for high quality versus trying to get to market faster mm. I think as as an engineer, I really want, you know, I like high quality code. I, you know, I like building things that are like robust and scalable and all these other things. And I think in practice, what I've seen is like that stuff rarely matters compared to just launching something and iterating on it very quickly, you know, because in a seed round, you might get, you know, 12 months, 15 months of time to actually like go launch something, find product market fit. You know, if you launch in a month and then you can iterate on something new every month, you get like, you know, 15 at-bats. 
if it takes you five months and then you know you're iterating every three months you're going to get like three or four at bats and so in the first case like you're just much more likely to succeed and then if you do succeed then you'll have more capital like you'll have people wanting to work for you and then you could clean things up and so as an engineer i find that pretty unsatisfying Mm -hmm. but i think from a business perspective it's usually the right way to go PayPal is famous for the level of argumentation and discomfort that existed on an interpersonal level within the company. But the people really enjoyed the fact that there were so many arguments that they were heated. Do you find that that's, is that a trend at companies where there is this level of interpersonal argumentation or people with strong opinions battling back and forth like at what level is interpersonal discomfort at a company healthy so i think paypal to me at least what i've read about it feels pretty different than the companies i've worked with and this is it's hard for me to answer this question because the truth is like I meet with founders a lot, but I'm usually not sitting in their office day to day. So for all I know, they could be fighting all the time, although I don't think they are. But my impression is like the best companies, they're very open. And so I think they, they try to have these cultures of like transparency and openness and respect. And I think that does, that definitely means people can argue, but I think they try to keep it more civil. And so the idea is, you know, if people disagree, like they really, you know, it's not that one person should shut up because like they've been at the company less long or they have a different title. It's more like people should speak up and then they should try to, you know, figure out their differences, figure out the best approach in a civil way. Mm. I haven't seen the PayPal dynamic that much, although, you know, I'm mostly kind of looking as a semi-outsider at a lot of companies. Mm -hmm. So as a VC, discomfort is often caused by different kinds of risks. You have a pretty good talk about this called De-Risking Your Startup, where you break down the risks in a mathematical way that was really appealing to me. What are the risks that a startup should try to eliminate or at least quantify? So I think quantifying is the most important thing early on. And and maybe maybe not even quantifying in a mathematical sense, but just trying to figure out where your risks are. Because I, I think, you know, the way I think about the startups, like the success of a startup is almost like it's just a bunch of change probabilities where it's kind of like th- there's going to be a 10% chance of, you know, finding the right co-founder. And then there's like a 50% chance you'll build the right product and, you know, a 30% chance you can sell the product once you build it. And so there's all these different areas where, you know, there's hiring, there's management, there's what product you have, there's what the competition does. And, and each of these is like, you know, an opportunity for your company to fail, unfortunately. And I think what I see sometimes, and it, it pains me to say it, I see it a lot actually with technical founders where people will kind of focus on the things that aren't really risks. And then it ends up, you know, they're sort of surprised a few years later when investors don't give them credit for that and don't want to like put more money into the company. Because what will happen is, for example, you have two really talented engineers that are starting a company and they're pitching a product and the VCs, you know, or investors are talking to really like the product. And, you know, the, the question in the mind of the VC is like, well, I'm sure you can build this, but if you do, like, can you sell it? And, and then what will happen is like a lot of times the engineers will build the product for a year and they'll be like, look, I built it. And, and the investors sort of like, well, like I already knew you could do that. Like the thing I really cared about is, could you sell it? And there's been like no progress on that. And so I think it's really important to sort of assess where your risks are. And it's, you know, there's these common categories like recruiting or hiring, also management. Some risks are more industry specific. Like for example, if you're doing something with healthcare, usually like how do you get 
the sales going and how do you work with all the incentives of like, you know, the doctors, the hospitals, the insurers, the patients, all these parties. So sometimes the risks are more industry specific like that, but it's good to really enumerate them and try to think about like, you know, what here is actually risky, what is not very risky. And then whatever is the riskiest thing, usually kind of like, you know, you want to swallow the frog to use that expression. Yeah. So the mathematical expression for this that you have in, in the de-risking your startup talk is basically, you know, if you have let's say let's say you're an investor and you're looking at a company and there's so there's the healthcare so if you're if it's a healthcare company it's like okay can you sell this to doctors if there's a let's say you need to sell it to doctors you need to sell it to insurers you need to sell it to customers and you need to build the software and if there's a 70% chance of the first one 60% chance of the second one 80% chance of the third one 40% chance of the fourth one it's the product of those four scenarios if you're if you as a vc are evaluating the success of the successful potential outcome of that business it's the product of those four probabilities times the potential upside for that investment so that's how you get to an expected value as a vc so for for people who didn't understand that explanation describe why companies with let's say two companies are going after the same market Explain why those two companies might have different expected values of success. Yeah, so so first, I think your your explanation is exactly right. I think, you know, to, to use a really simple example, if there's a 50% chance you can build the product and a 10% chance that you can sell it to a doctor, you know, if you take the 50% to 100%, you doubled your valuation. But if you take the 10% to 100%, you've 10x your valuation. So there's a lot more impact on focusing on the harder thing. And then in terms of companies at early stages, you might have a couple of companies where if they succeed, they might be, you know, $1 billion outcomes or public companies. But in the early stages, they might look very different. So, you know, for example, maybe one company already has a CTO and the other one has, you know, a business co-founder who needs to somehow find a good CTO. And that's a big risk because, you know, if you're not technical, it's really hard to interview technical people. Just like I know from my experience being technical, it's hard to interview non-technical people. You know, like you kind of don't know what to ask for. You don't know how to calibrate good candidates. So even though these companies might have kind of a similar outcome if they're both successful, one might have a much higher probability of success than the other one. And and I guess I would say like that's one difference that people sometimes don't think about, which is in public markets like the stock market, your valuation is based on your revenue and your growth rate mostly. So, you know, if you have $200 million in revenue and there's like a 5x multiple on companies, your valuation is a billion dollars. At seed stage, there's no revenue, there's no product, like sometimes there's barely a team. And so instead of the valuation being based on revenue and growth, it's just more based on potential and probabilities. And so that's when investors are thinking like, well, this company has a 1% chance of being a $5 billion company. This other one has a 3% chance. So the 3% one should be worth three times more. But it's really based more on like these risks and probabilities rather than traction. Hmm. So I listen to Jason Calacanis' podcast a lot. And the thing that he always says is that he's just placing bets on founders. And I think probably there's also some element of market and so on, especially if he doesn't know the founder. But if he believes in the founder, he's basically like will throw money at any idea, or at least this is the way he presents himself. Do you agree with so? But I think he invested at kind of a different stage, a little earlier stage than a seed stage fund, because he's doing like angel investments, which I guess is like fifty to two hundred and fifty k checks. Well, to what degree do you? 
how do you see that that perspective? Like, do you think that's a just an alternate perspective to the way that you approach it? Because it sounds like market risk is a big deal to you, and as market risk, execution risk, as well as how good is this founder? Yeah, so I would say I, I agree with Jason on the part that founders are really important, and so I think that's that's often you know the main criteria when we're deciding whether to invest or not is like what do we think about the founder? Do we think they're capable of building whatever they want to build? But on the flip side, I think where I don't agree is kind of going back to maybe a mathematical way of looking at this. I think I think launching a product, you know, it takes a few months usually, maybe like three or five months to go launch your MVP and try to get some data on it. And if you have, you know, let's say 15 months of runway, you basically have three or four shots of that. And so if I think you're a great founder, but I don't think your idea has promise, I know you're going to waste at least one of those shots. And maybe it's two. And so I'm looking at a lot of companies that they'll have four shots and you'll have two. Like to me, that means, you know, either either I think your valuation should be half as much or maybe that's more risk than I'm willing to take. Interesting. And is it also, so I mean, and from his perspective, he's always saying like, oh, it doesn't matter if this one doesn't work out because then I, as long as you let me be the first money in on your next investment, if you're an awesome founder, so if you're playing if you were playing that kind of game it seems like it would be it would be okay for you to even if you you know had a 50% chance with this person cuz they have four at bats and they're going to they are they're going to brick on the first two if you take the longer term if you're just investing in the founder wouldn't it make sense to put money down just to potentially get into whatever their future situation is or is the deal I guess if the top of the funnel is so big that you have many people who fit that qualification, you still want to go with this type of person that's going to have four at-bats versus the two at-bats for the present scenario. Yeah, I think you touched on an interesting point, which is the funnel. And I think, I definitely feel like there are a lot of really smart, you know, ambitious, amazing people out there. And, you know, as an example, like I think for a while I used to get impressed when I'd hear like, oh, this person was, you know, employee eight at Instagram or, Mm. you know, employee 15 at Uber. But I think if you do the math and you just list like, well, what are all the unicorn companies and, you know, the first 25 employees at each of them, that's like 3000 people or something. Hmm. And so I think I think the numbers are bigger than people realize. And I think the other part is if I don't like someone's idea or it's actually less about not liking, it's more like, you know, I don't think it's it's an idea that'll be a good business. I think in those cases, actually saying no and giving good feedback doesn't disqualify me from their next idea, because if anything, I found that. You know, if, if I give people a good reason and I say like, hey, you know, for example, like you're building a company that, you know, is a marketplace for, I don't know, like pets or something. And I don't think it'll work for reasons A, B and C. And then first, most people appreciate that kind of, you know, kind of directness. And on top of that, you know, in a year or two, if it turns out that reason B was right and the startup didn't work for that reason, you know, there's a good chance you'll come to me and be like, hey, I really appreciated the feedback. Now I'm doing like a new startup. Like, you know, I'd love to chat with you. And so I definitely feel like, saying no to somebody hasn't disqualified me from, you know, their their future ideas or their future companies. Hmm. So whatever idea somebody is working on, there is a bundle of risks known as execution risk. What are the different types of execution risk and how do you think about that as an investor? So I think for me execution risk it's a little hard to describe, but I think it's kind of the things that are more in your hand and less or like the things that are more in your control and less about trial and error. And so I think, for example, like trying to find product market fit, like you have an idea, but you kind of have to just go test it and maybe you get lucky, maybe it takes a few tries. But then there's things like, well, you have the right idea and you have the right market, 
but like, can you actually build it or can you actually hire the people, you know, to build it or things like that, where those things should be in the founder's control. And if you're not doing a good job on those, then you're not executing well. You know, hiring is an example, building good software, but launching it quickly, managing people as you scale up. A lot of these places are, you know, if if you do them well, then they just work. But if you don't do them well, it can really stall a company that would have worked otherwise. And so I think for me, that's what execution risk is. So a best practice that you suggest is to focus on the biggest risks. You already talked about this. I think this is this is another thing that's, that's important in business as well as in life. Oftentimes, you know, you have a, a number of different things that are going on that are stressing you out or that are difficulties, and oftentimes it's it's important to just take a step back and focus on the thing that is the biggest risk or the the biggest problem in your life. So, as a VC. What are the biggest risks? What are, what are the biggest? Is are they? Is it within LPs or is it in selecting the right businesses or is it is it in not missing out on the right businesses? Tell me about the mistakes. I'm sorry, the biggest risks that you have as a VC. I think the biggest risk for most investors is probably on the picking side, picking companies. That is, I think the biggest challenge, which I mentioned before, is the feedback loops are just so long. And so you don't know for five or 10 years whether you picked companies well. And even when you do know, like you sort of know that, well, you picked them well five or 10 years ago and then the technology has changed and like the landscape's changed a lot. So maybe whatever whatever criteria you're using back then is no longer applies. So I think that's something that, you know, I and all the VCs I know think about a lot. I think it's less important to get into every good deal. It's more important to just make sure you're at least sometimes getting into good deals. Mm. With most VC funds, like, usually the best one or two investments will be, you know, 50 or 75% of the entire fund return. And so, you know, you don't need 10 of them. You just need one or two to have a good fund. So you could, you know, if you, if you invest in Airbnb and pass on Uber and Dropbox, like you're still going to be really happy. Um, but picking is definitely the hardest part, especially because seed stage, like there's so little data, you know, a lot of times it's the founders. Sometimes they have a prototype. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's a tiny bit of revenue. Sometimes there's not no revenue at all. So I, I think just like thinking about decision-making, decision-making criteria, trying to be disciplined, trying to compare notes with other investors and make sure you're not missing anything. I think th- those are all, you know, really important. I don't have a great answer for how to do this well, because no matter what, like the feedback loops are long. But I, I think the thing I've tried to do a lot is to really track companies, both that I've invested in and that I've passed on to see, you know, which ones succeed, which ones fail, which ones kind of half succeed. And then, you know, tr- try to suss out like what are the differences between those companies. Hmm. Any insights that you're coming to from even though it's just been like you haven't really gone through enough of a enough of a time frame to get that feedback loop? Are there, are there any ins- insights you're having just from the early results of the companies? Yeah, so I, I think there there are two I've seen so far. One is I don't like this term, but I think charisma is really important, hmm. and and that's it's it's not a word I like because I think it has a little bit of a can have a little bit of a negative connotation, but I think the best founders. You know, founders often have to like sell to lots of different people. So they're always, you know, they're selling prospective hires on joining. Hmm. They're selling to investors, fundraising. They're selling to prospective customers. And so I think the best founders are like people where when others meet them, they just think, wow, like I really want to work for this person. I really want to invest in them. I really want to, you know, buy their product. And so I think that's like that that's been a skill that just, you know, kind of is a just a multiple on startups. And then the other thing I've seen probably more for B2B companies than B2C is when founders are going after some niche vertical, like, you know, they're selling whatever, like power plant management software or something. The best founders are the ones that know something about the vertical. 
I think it's it's really hard if you know you're trying to sell power plant software and you've never worked in a power plant and you don't know how they work and you think you'll figure it out versus you know if you spent 10 years in the industry like you know you know the CEOs of a bunch of big companies in the space a lot of our best investments that are B2B have founders that like really know their their market before they even start. Hmm. So in order to effectively go from an engineer to an investor role, you need to take your technical expertise, whether that's in distributed systems or data science or APIs, and you have to layer on knowledge of human psychology. So you have to figure out how sales and marketing and psychology and finance, how those things match up against the technical expertise. I think you could be an expert in either in in either the sales and marketing, the finance stuff, or in the engineering stuff. But it's obviously best if you have at least some familiarity with all of these different spaces. What are the domains where you feel like you need to shore up your intelligence? You know, whether it's sales and marketing or psychology or finance. How have you found a way to? to layer the knowledge of those areas on top of your knowledge of the technical space. Yeah, so I can give you a couple examples of this. I guess as a preface, I'm a very stereotypical software engineer. So, you know, I, I like numbers and symbols much more than people usually. <laughs> we, we actually, I had a joke with my partners before where every time there was like a networking event, they used to live in LA and New York and I was here. And whenever there was a networking event here, I'd ask them if like either of them were planning to visit here because I didn't want to go. <laughs> but I would say in terms of like in terms of my blind spots as an investor that come from engineering. So I can give you an example of one I kind of fixed, one I'm trying to fix and one I don't know how to fix. So the one I, I fixed pretty quickly was I really overvalued tech when I was first starting out. So I think as an engineer, I'd sort of get excited about like a really elegant solution or a really cool product or like a really neat algorithm. And I think what I've learned over the last five years now that I've worked with, you know, dozens of companies is the tech is almost never a bottleneck. So, you know, usually when, when the founder says like, I'm going to build X, like they can usually build X. The problem is like, you know, is X the right thing to build or, or if they build it, do they know how to sell it? Or like, can they build a good team around them? And so I think, you know, I focused on tech a lot in the first few months. And then now I basically do very little tech diligence, if any, and I try to focus more on the business side. One thing I'm, I'm still working on is because I like numbers, I tend to overvalue traction. So I think if somebody's got like really interesting numbers, I'll, I'll, you know, that weighs heavily on me. And I think a lot of times my partners will sort of remind me of, you know, hey, this looks good in the short term, but, you know, we're trying to bet on like, could this be, you know, a billion dollar company someday? And sometimes I lose sight of that because like the immediate term numbers look good. So that's one I'm like always trying to remind myself of. And then what I don't know how to fix is I don't know how to read people well. And I'm really excited that my partners are good at it because I think if I was by myself, I'd make a lot of mistakes, but they're much better at kind of sussing out, you know, is this person charismatic or like, you know, like, do they seem like they have good integrity or do they seem like they're a hard worker? I'm okay at that stuff, but they're much better at it than I am. Mm. And I, I think, I think maybe relying on partners is the only solution I have. I, I don't know how to fix it. Mm. Talk a little bit more about that, like reading people when and why that's important. So I'll give you an example. So, so some founders are like really good salespeople and, you know, they can pitch their idea well, e even if there's like a lot of cracks under the armor. And I think if you're good at reading people, sometimes you could tell that somebody's, you know, trying too hard or like they're trying to hide something. I tend to be less perceptive about stuff like that. Like it's just like I, I just don't see it as easily. Hmm. Okay. okay. I want to talk about mistakes. It's summer 2017. Are there any 
common mistakes that you're seeing founders make as you're evaluating companies as you're talking to engineers? So, so I think a generic answer would be like the avoiding mis- discomfort, but it, that has a lot of manifestations depending on the company and the founder. The two common mistakes I see on the fundraising side are twofold. One is probably more of a perennial mistake, which is I think founders that have an easy time raising a seed round often think a Series A will be easy too. And it's a very different ballgame because the seed round is much more about kind of like your vision, your pitch, like, you know, how well you can sell what you're planning to do with the company. The Series A is much more traction based. And like, what have you actually shown in the last year and a half? Like, what have you proven out? You know, if I gave you five or $10 million as an investment, do you know what to do with it? And so I think sometimes that's sobering for founders because, you know, they're, they're still trying to pitch on the vision because maybe they haven't made as much progress as they, they would have liked. But for Series A investors, that usually doesn't really resonate. So that's a more perennial mistake. And I think a more recent one is there's been just a lot of angel funding, at, you know, more seed funds, more angels, more syndicates. So I think there's a lot of capital at that early stage. And so sometimes founders, you know, they really value closing quickly instead of picking the best investors. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. And I think the best way to think about it is it's a long term relationship, you know, it might be a five or 10 year working relationship. And so you really want to take time, like find the people that can help you the most, find people where you can talk to other founders they've worked with and they diligence well. And so I, I think that's something that, you know, hasn't gone away, but more and more I'll see companies basically taking money from a lot of investors because the terms are good and the round is fast. And then later, you know, they often end up regretting it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you and I talked about this a little bit earlier you said that when you were starting as a VC, you had a, a tendency to ask founders questions about engineering stuff because you come from an engineering background and you sometimes may have had gaps in the knowledge of sales or marketing or just those questions didn't occur to you. How did you overcome the gaps in knowledge that might have led to otherwise if you otherwise mistakes that you would have that you ended up avoiding like how did you learn to ask the right questions when you had those gaps in knowledge early on yeah so for me by far the most valuable thing i've had is good partners in the fund so i i, I have two partners chad and seth chad's kind of been around the venture world through his family his brother and dad are both in venture so he's kind of been around that world for you know his whole life and I think he's picked up on a lot of things, you know, through interacting with investors and founders and, you know, learning from them, just kind of more through osmosis. And then on top of that, Seth had a really good, long angel investing track record where he had angel invested in companies like Docker and Parse and Wish. And and so I think the, the best thing for me to learn was just to like take a lot of meetings with both of them and then just calibrate. And so, you know, I would say like, oh, I, I really like the tech here. And then, you know, Seth would say, well, like, well, they have a lot of competitors and you should like you should research them. And then, you know, and I think the first couple of times he said that I did the research and I was like, oh, wow, like it's true. The tech is good, but this is such a crowded market. And so then, I you know, I kind of learned to like ask, ask about that myself or, you know, maybe maybe like Chad would tell me like, oh, you know, this founder had a certain characteristic in terms of like it seems like maybe they don't have a strong work ethic. And if you ask a question like this, like you'll see that. And so I think just doing meetings with other people really helped me a lot. I think if I was a solo investor, I'd probably like be much worse at it. And I still don't know if I'm great at it, but I think I'd be much worse at it You know, if I, if I never had a chance to learn from other people. If you talk to somebody who's a founder and you 
get a perspective for their business and you're feeling really optimistic about about it after having a conversation with them and then maybe you have a second meeting with them and you ask them a question and some information comes out that's somewhat damning to their business and it turns out that they were pitching a vision of their business through rose-colored glasses and it was a little you know not entirely truthful is that negative signaling for you or is that more like oh they're good at marketing like that's something that they should be doing at this stage they should be pres- you know presenting their business through rose-colored glasses to what degree should a founder be honest despite the the metrics or the realities of their business my personal opinion is people should always be honest about this stuff i kind of hate that there are so many good dating and marriage analogies to venture capital but i think there's there's like a good dating analogy here which is you know you want to be honest but maybe some things you bring up later than others right and so you know maybe maybe like something you bring up on the third date because after after the first two like you know you feel like you know the person better and so you'll be more understanding so i think it's the same thing with you know like let's say for example like a pretty bad scenario for a founder might be that like you your founder you know is on, your co-founder is on the way out and so maybe that's not something you pitch in the first meeting but you pitch the vision you pitch like you know what your plans are and then if the person's excited in the second meeting you can say like you know let me reiterate on the vision and here are my plans and just so you know like my co-founder is probably leaving and so i'm looking for a replacement right now and and i think at that point maybe you have the report and kind of like the trust established that the investor is fine with that mm. So around fundraising, you have given the advice that founders should not rush fundraising. So I've heard a a lot of different pieces of advice on this. So some people say you should block out a few months of time where you're going to do nothing but fundraising because it's such a distraction and you should completely serialize it. Other people say you can do it concurrently with building the company. You just have conversations with people, have it materialize organically. Do you have a strong perspective on this? Well, first, I think this is why having multiple co-founders is really valuable because usually maybe the CEO is fundraising a lot of their time, but the other ones can actually make progress on the company. In general, I do think you know usually fundraising takes up a lot of time, but it doesn't take up all of your time. And there's two reasons for that. One is you know, investor meetings are usually nine to five, like you're not going to be meeting investors at 10 p.m. But a lot of times founders might be, you know, coding at 10 p.m. or like doing some research at 10 p.m. So I think like most jobs, like, you know, especially in the first year or two, like it's long weeks for a lot of people. And so, you know, you might be meeting with investors for 20, 30 hours a week, but you're still also working like 30, 40 hours on the product on top of that. I definitely feel that way as a VC too, where I take a lot of pitch meetings in the day, but in the evenings, I have a lot of work to do too. And so, and like the evenings are free time for that because people don't want to, you know, meet for a pitch meeting at 9 p.m. So I think that's one point. And the other point is, honestly, you know, it won't take months of full-time work because if you're doing like 30 pitch meetings a week for two months and you have no investors, like the problem's probably not that you're not pitching hard enough. It's probably that there's something about your pitch that doesn't resonate with people. So I think for most people, you know, it might be like a couple of weeks of like a really full out sprint. And then a lot of kind of like more sporadic follow-ups after that for, you know, a month or two. And then hopefully around closes. Hmm. How does a platform like AngelList change the fundraising environment? Or how do you see it in the modern fundraising environment? How could founders, technology founders, use something like AngelList? Yeah, so I think it's kind of another good option on the seed round side, right? Where I think a lot of times I've seen people, you know, either fill out around or maybe like an investor can sort of make a bigger investment and a bigger impact on a company if they have a syndicate behind them. 
I've rarely seen AngelList sort of take a whole round. So typically, you know, maybe maybe a founder is raising two million dollars, and you know, a lot of that's from funds and angels, and maybe you know, three hundred k is from a an AngelList syndicate or something along those lines. Hmm. And and how does that typically work? Like, is it like you? Because I've heard the the model is founders find a lead and then the lead broadcasts to their then the lead puts in like 50k and then they broadcast to their investors and then the investors or the sorry the other people in the syndicate put in another 250 or another 350 or something like that is that how it typically works the lead basically puts in some amount of money and then signals to the other people yeah i haven't gone through the process myself but i think that is how it works that the lead basically makes a commitment and then they talk with the founder about how much you know, basically how much room in the in the fundraising round yeah. the founders willing to allocate. And then the angel investor will go and syndicate whatever room is left after their investment to their syndicate. Mm. So I've heard a lot of interviews with VCs um, because, well, I think part of it is kind of the same thing what you said about founders is like, I think a lot of the best VCs are pretty charismatic and they have interesting perspectives and they see a unique top level view of of the world like you know new companies are coming to them pitching them ideas so investors often have this pretty interesting macro view and that's i mean that's one of the i heard you on 20 minute vc that's one i think that's one of the reasons why that show is pretty good is because it's a unique perspective you know you, you vcs do have a unique perspective on the world the best vcs i find say things that are orthogonal to the norm they say things that are pretty different is there conventional vc wisdom that you feel very at odds with so you're gonna laugh but i think the conventional wisdom i feel most at odds with is that you have to have like a really unconventional viewpoint on the market okay and the reason i say that is because i think i definitely think that's true in public markets because if you're trading a stock like you know netflix or something you really need a different opinion from the crowd and you have to be right in order to you know sort of beat the market averages i think it's very different for private companies especially seed stage companies because you know having an interesting insight on a market is one way to have kind of outsized you know abnormally good returns but there's a lot of other ways to do well for example sometimes you know every investor thinks an idea is good and the idea is good and the trick is not you know do, do you see things differently it's more like you know, this founder will have three or four slots for investors in the round and there's 50 investors that are interested. And so it's more about like, can you stand out from that crowd? And so I, I've seen that with, you know, a, a number of our companies, for example, are doing really well and there's nothing really controversial about them. I think one or two of these, you might actually, you know, there might be good guess, but like as an example, there's a company called Scalar, S-C-A-L-Y-R, which does really fast log aggregation and management. Actually, they just became a sponsor, so thank you for the intro. I got sponsorship out of that. Awesome. One of the reasons I paid for your coffee this morning. <laughs> awesome. I got to get you more sponsors. <laughs> so like, one thing that's great about them is they have this really lightning fast log search product, log, log management and search. And I think if you pitch that to like investors or founders, it's like, hey, you have log search. Would you like it to be fast? No one says like, well, that's a contrarian idea. Like, I'd really like slow. Like, everyone believes that that's a good solution. And so I think there it's more about, you know, did we meet the founder early enough, like before he filled out this whole round, right? Or, or like that was the example in that case. Another one was we invested in this company called Flexport. They're, they're a really good company in the freight forwarding space. So they basically help other goods companies ship products from like China to the U.S., for example. And it had, you know, a really 
popular seed round where a bunch of people wanted to invest. And I think we had the advantage of like, we had a nice warm intro. We met them a little bit earlier than uh, a lot of other investors. And so there, again, there's nothing contrarian about it because like the founder was amazing. It was like his third company in the same space. Yeah, like the first two were really successful. So I don't think anybody looked at that and said like, I'm not sure if this will do well. I think it's more like everyone thought it would do well. And then the question was like, how do you get in? And so I think, I think there's this whole mantra of like, well, you have to be contrarian. You have to, you know, see ideas differently than everyone else. But I think a lot of times it's more about, are you somebody that, you know, people want to work with, or can you make decisions like a week faster than the other investor? Or there's a lot of different ways to win in this game. Mm-hmm. So Flexport obviously a gigantic moat and a really hard business to build so that's like certainly an appealing investment the developer tool space i think is is sometimes harder to evaluate i mean you look at a business like a scalar or a periscope data which you're also an investor in and what's appealing about those is it seems like they have really good unit economics because it's just a software business it's easy to scale and you know, once you once you like Flexport, I know they. I I I read a testimonial from them about Periscope data, and they were talking about how they built their entire business off of Periscope data. So it's not going away anytime soon. But you look in the BI space, and there's tremendous churn, right? Like every every five like five years ago or six years ago, Tableau was the hottest hotness. Of course, Tableau is not going away anytime soon. People who have built businesses with Tableau are going to be customers for the long haul, but the business would not be as appealing to invest in today because there's Periscope data and other looker types of business intelligence tools. So does the amount of churn in the developer tool space, does that at all impact? So I guess, you know, you have a moat in the sense that the people who are using a developer tool today they're never going to throw it out completely. If you're a technology company that's doing really well and you're a Periscope data customer, Periscope data is part of your legacy infrastructure, you're going to keep using it forever. So in that sense, it's a, it's a moat with those customers. But there may not be as much of a moat in terms of growth. So your growth might cap out in five years when the when the BI tool space or the log management space changes. And then so if your customer growth changes, I imagine as an investor things would change but maybe if you're just in the early space you don't need to think about that i don't know tell tell me a little bit how you think about moats in the developer tool space i think developer tools are definitely harder to work with in a long-term perspective for a couple of reasons i think the biggest one is just i think developers are hard customers because more than other segments they're they're really willing to try you know new tools i think the unusual thing about them is they're willing to build their own tools so, you know, I think if you if you sell like a sales solution to a salesperson, if they don't like it, they'll look at other sales solution, but they're not going to write their own like CRM, for example. But a developer might very well do that for some tool you're pitching to them. And so I think the bar is really high. And on top of that, I think, you know, companies are just starting to figure out how to repeatably and like, you know, predictably sell to that segment. I think, you know, with a salesperson, you go, maybe you go take them to dinner or something, right? I think for an engineer, like they often don't want to talk to people like they want to, you know, they just want some online info and they want a demo that they can work on themselves. And so I, I think that piece of the market of like how you sell to that group is still developing. I think the moats come in different varieties. So one is I think developer communities end up being a pretty big deal. You know, I, I think Twilio is a company that's done really well with that. Or um, I think Stripe as well, where they have APIs and I think their APIs hide a lot of complexity, but if somebody really wanted to 
you know, copy like the Twilio API, they could probably rebuild it on like, I don't know, $10 million or something. But Twilio just has so much mindshare and love from the developer community that it would be really hard to displace them. I think for some companies like Scalar, for example, where they do log management, you do get economies of scale sometimes. So, you know, if as their costs go down for AWS, like storage and compute, you know, they can offer their price, they can price their service lower than somebody who's just starting out today and building the same product. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think one area that a lot of kind of on the community building side, one area that a lot of developer tool companies have really embraced is basically doing really good content marketing. Sometimes it's through meetups, but a lot of times it's having a blog on like Periscope, for example, has a great blog on SQL optimization, kind of like advanced SQL usage, which is great because they, their customers are SQL analysts. And so I think they've become kind of like a, a good thought leader in that space where if you're, if you're a SQL analyst, you kind of think of them as a company that, you know, you're their core customer. It's not, you know, someone in a different department. And I think that really resonates with people. Hmm. Every VC has an investment funnel. And in order to succeed, you need your investment funnel to at least have some interesting deals within it. Do you need differentiated deal flow or can you just evaluate the like if you, can you just somehow create the same deal flow that other people are getting and sort through it better than other people how do you look at deal flow my personal opinions i think proprietary deal flow is just going to slowly keep going away over time as it has been for the last few years you know i think it's an interesting thought experiment i think it's very unlikely that a founder would come and talk to me and not even try to talk to any other investor for a few weeks while they talk to me. Like everyone does this in parallel. And, you know, in the best case, maybe, maybe I get a few days head start because like they know me before, or, like for some reason they really want my feedback over someone else's, but it's very hard to just have deal flow where, you know, people go to you and no one else. And so I think because of that, it becomes more about one, can you pick companies? Well, two, sometimes like speed of decision-making is really useful. I think I've actually seen this for engineering hiring as well where it's like a really competitive market right now for engineers. And one of the best things companies could do sometimes is, you know, if you interview somebody and give them a same day offer, and on the other hand, like they're interviewing with Google and it's going to, you know, it's like a seven week process and a lot of waiting. A lot of times people just, you know, they love that conviction of you saying like, hey, like I met you today. That was great. Like come work for me, you know, start next week. So I think like speed of decision making can be a really big differentiator. It can also be, you know, having having a good brand and a good reputation where, there's a lot of founders that say, oh, you're a great investor to work with. And then they recommend you to their founder friends. And or like if you're talking to a founder and they do references on you, the references are great. I think that has a really large impact, too. So you write a lot about VC and programming on the Coding VC, which is your your blog. Describe your thesis for that blog. What are you trying to accomplish with what you're writing? So I think when I set out, I didn't really have a strong thesis. My, my main approach has just been that I think having an engineer's perspective on venture capital is kind of unusual. And so I thought it might just be interesting to jot my notes down as I sort of learned about the business over the last four or five years. And I think over time, where it's shifted to is I, I try to write actionable, concrete advice for people. And a lot of times it's sort of written as an engineer. So it's sort of like, here's an algorithm for this or a heuristic for that. And the way I think about it a lot is a lot of what motivates many of the posts is kind of, it's almost like refactoring or, you know, caching, where like if I give the same advice a lot of times in person, uh. like I'd, I'd rather cash it and put it in a blog post and then later, then it's kind of more scalable. Or if I see, you know, lots of people making the same mistake, I can sort of think about it and 
try to come up with like a good solution and that's kind of almost like refactoring right and then i post that and you know hopefully that's useful to people mm-hmm. so that's kind of how i think about the blog now mm-hmm. are there any blog posts rattling around in your head right now that you want to put onto paper that you haven't yet so i have a couple i've been sort of collecting notes for for years <laughs> so, so there's three that i'd like to pu- publish over the the course of the year one is on pitch decks so i I've been wanting to do kind of a, a long series on pitch decks for a while, which really talks about, you know, like for each slide, like here are the slides you should have in the deck. Here's what each slide should have. Because I think there's sort of, you know, a lot of good patterns and anti-patterns for what to do and not to do. So I'd love to put that in a post. Another post I've been thinking about is, you know, we've talked about moats a little bit. And that's actually my fund's focus. Like the kind of companies we like to invest in are the ones that where we think there's a good long-term moat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of an overloaded term and people throw it around and I'd love to do a series and kind of explaining what moats really are, like giving examples of them, you know, like the types of moats, like network effects or economies of scale, giving examples of each of those types of moats, like explaining what the pros and cons are. And the last post that I've been working on for a while is, you know, I've been in the industry for almost five years now. So I've just accumulated a whole bunch of like lessons and tips and, you know, do's and don'ts from working with a bunch of other companies and investors. So I've been kind of thinking of writing a, you know, 50 lessons in five years post or something Hmm. like that. Let's go deeper on moats. If I'm thinking about building a technology company, how do I find a moat? For let's say let's say I'm I just have a space that I'm interested in, you know, how do I find a moat for that? Or or how do you think about moats more broadly? Just give give me a deeper explanation for how you think about moats, what that term actually means. I mean, obviously it comes from the Buffett school of thought. He talks all about he talks about moats in in his writing and that's a big focus of his investments. What's different about your thesis on moats? I'm not sure if it's different. I guess I would say I just, I I think my partners and I value them a lot more than a lot of other aspects of a business. And the reason we think about it that way is, you know, as seed investors, we're investing in companies where it might take six or eight years for a company to go public or get acquired for a large sum. And so in that time, you know, like on day one, nobody really cares about what you're doing. You know, on on day a thousand, where maybe you have like $10 million in revenue, there'll be some competitor in the space that starts looking at your company and thinking like, oh, that seems like you know a good business and I have a lot of capital, like maybe I should try to get into that space. And so I think what we want is we want to invest in companies where the bigger they get, the harder are for others to catch up to. And as I mentioned before, it could be network effects, it could be economies of scale, which means sort of like your, you know, your, your fixed costs get spread over more and more products. So your, basically your cost per product goes down a lot. I think software businesses often have great economies of scale. And in terms of the how we think about it, so on day one, you know, basically nobody really has a moat. And it's something you need to think about, though, because when investors ask this question that's sort of cliche of like, well, what would you do if Google copied you? Like, people need to have a good answer. And maybe Google's not the competitor you're afraid of. Maybe it's Amazon. Maybe it's another startup. Maybe it's a big player and you're like, you know, kind of more niche space. But at some point, like somebody will try to copy you. And a moat is basically the one way to to guarantee you can keep like a sustained profit. Because if you think about it, you know, if you have a great business and you're making like $1,000 per customer in profit, but it's really easy to copy the business, somebody will copy it and do it for like $500 in profit. And then someone else will copy it and do it for $200 in profit. And eventually, like, you know, all of you are sort of like fighting for pennies. And I think if you have a good moat, you know, you're making $1,000 per customer and the customers are happy. And on top of that, like your competitors, they really can't touch you because it's not economically feasible for them to, to do whatever you did. One of the most intriguing trends that is going on in the world is 
just the democratization of starting companies. And we're seeing China go from a place where it's copying American businesses to real innovation is happening there. So the really interesting businesses are being started in China. So you're an investor in Andela, right? Yes. Okay, so Andela is this African company that's basically makes it really easy to augment your team with African developers, but it's also more of an ecosystem. So it's creating an entire ecosystem of strong developers in Africa, and it looks like it's you know probably eventually companies are going to come out of it somehow. It might be like a Y Combinator sort of app for Africa. What's going to change in the world when there are technology companies coming out of every area of the world because that seems to be on the horizon so you know is it going to be a positive sum environment where these companies are building off of each other and you get startups investing in startups or is there a point where it's more of a zero sum sort of thing and the the companies become hyper competitive with each other what what's your long term view on what the democratization of technology startup capabilities does to the world? I'm pretty bullish on kind of the value for the world. I think basically just technology will accelerate and the quality of life will accelerate for people. I think for a lot of the startups I've looked at in other countries, what's really interesting to me is they have business models or approaches that just wouldn't really carry over to the United States or Europe. So for example, like I remember you know, about six months ago, talking to a really interesting company, I was trying to build out basically a PayPal-like network in Africa. And what they were starting with was like electricity bill payments. And so the way it works, you know, if you're in Nigeria, for example, as far as I understand it, is if you have to pay your electricity bill, you go to the local electricity office, you stand in line and you give them like, you know, $5 in cash and they give you a code where it's the code says, okay, you now have like an extra, you know, this many kilowatt hours on your meter and you punch that code into the meter and then when that meter starts expiring again, you go to the office again, pay them in cash. And so this company, like, they wanted to basically build out this PayPal-like network for peer-to-peer payments. And the way they were trying to build out the network was to basically enable people to do electricity payments, like, online or through their cell phones. And so it's an interesting model because, you know, the initial product is not peer-to-peer at all. It's more like, hey, you know, instead of going and waiting in line, why don't you just pay for this on your phone? But then once a lot of people are doing that, now you have a great network of people to go start like a peer-to-peer payment service. And I think that's a really interesting idea. And I could see it working really well in like Nigeria. I don't think that works at all in the US, for example, because like people don't go to the local electricity office. So I think what happens is a lot of these local startups, they end up serving their own markets. And Hmm. sometimes that can be internationalized. But a lot of times, like maybe it's more of a, you know, a market-specific solution or market-specific problem. Hmm. One thing I have observed talking to particularly, so I've I've got a, a couple friends I made in Africa from interviewing them about uh, these, these brothers that built this browser called the Crocodile Browser. They were these teenage brothers that, that wrote a browser for Android. And talking to them, they are not afraid of discomfort. And I, that's something I, I've observed talking to other people from Africa too. You compare their work ethic and their attitude and their willingness to just build, 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 work, 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 solicit ideas, be humble, it so eclipses many of the people that are in Silicon Valley that I'm just like, 
I would much rather put money in these people if I if I could just on on the core level of the discomfort that they're willing to take on. Do you notice significant? I don't know how much like prospecting for deals you do outside of the United States, but do you notice a a difference in maybe the level of entitlement or the willingness to take on discomfort in people who are in countries outside of the United States? I think what I've noticed is in every country I've looked where I've met founders, like the best founders have that, have that element to them. I think to your point, when I meet founders from Africa, it feels like pretty much all of them have that aspect. And then I think in the US, like some people do and some people don't. So there's, there's a lot more variability, but I think kind of the best founders kind of regardless of location have that element. I, I think sometimes I'll see it where, you know, I'll, like I remember one founder I talked to, this was probably like three or four years ago. She was building this product that was basically try before you, it's called Lumoid. It's try before you buy for gear rental. And I remember asking her, you know, there are a couple of competitors that tried something similar in the last few years. Like, you know, why do you think they failed? You know, what are you doing differently? And this is like four years ago. And I still remember what happened because basically, I think a day or two later, she reached out to me and said, well, like I tracked down the founders of both companies. I interviewed both of them. Like I figured out. And I, I think like that to me showed like kind of so much hustle. And honestly, it's probably like not not an easy thing for people to do to just like pick up the phone, go to a stranger, be like, hey, can you tell me why your business failed? And so I think I've definitely seen that element from some founders and I've seen other founders that are sort of more, you know, more laid back and they're like, well, like, I'm not sure why that company failed or like, you know, we're different. And then it feels a little bit more lazy sometimes. But I think, I think the great founders are like, they're really hardworking. You know, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're all in on their companies. Hmm. How much investment do you do outside of the United States? We've done a little bit. So in the last almost five years, we've done about 60 investments. I think probably about six or seven have been outside of the U.S. A lot of them are in Canada, which is kind of outside of the U.S., but certainly not as much as, you know, it's certainly not as foreign as like Africa, for example. I think one one area where I've struggled a little bit in the last year or so is we actually think the African ecosystem is really interesting. We think there's a lot of potential there for like to build great companies the challenge has been that Series A investors haven't seemed too interested in the space so far. And so I think we've kind of seen this challenge where, you know, we'd like to invest in a company at the seed stage, but then we're, you know, pretty worried that they won't be able to get funding at a Series A. And so I think we're, we're sort of, for now, we've mostly been waiting to see, you know, signs where Series A investors will, you know, look at companies outside of the U.S. a bit more. And I think as soon as we start seeing that, we'd love to invest more in, in some of those other countries and oh. continents. So you think it's because they're not looking or is it, does it have to do with that use? Because what you said about that PayPal-like business that's kind of Balkan, potentially balkanized to, or couldn't maybe, won't, wouldn't be able to scale beyond Africa. You know, honestly, I think it's it's a mixture of like, and I feel this way too when I look at some of these companies, it's a mixture of like both discomfort and also feeling like, I'm just like, I know so little about a market, you know, because for example, like it took me a while to drill in on, on the Nigerian power market when I was looking at this company or like the payments market. And I think if I was a VC in Nigeria, it would have been much easier because I'd be like, oh yeah, this is what I do day to day. And so I think, I think one investors feel like it just takes a lot more work to really learn a market like that. And on top of that, like, it's hard to know if you really even know it, if like, unless you live in the place. And on top of that, on the discomfort side, I think, you know, there's a lot more uncertainty in investing in a company like let's say in Africa right now than there is in investing in like, you know, a SaaS startup out of San Francisco. And so I think, you know, for as long as there are enough really good SaaS companies in San Francisco, they'll probably keep getting a lot of VC dollars. 
So we're in the midst of this cryptocurrency run-up, and... Cryptocurrency? What's that? (laughs) And so, well, you know, what I find interesting about this is it's... I don't think anybody knows... Nobody can say, is this an overheated market, or is this an entire shift of the financial system? So I'm curious how you evaluate that. I know you're basically your I think I saw a tweet from you that was like the your strategy for investing in ICOs is don't invest in ICOs but an ICO is not the same as just investing in Bitcoin or investing in Ethereum so anyway what, what are your thoughts on this space and how do you identify what if this is a once in a lifetime moment where the market just goes up and up and up and up versus like how do you know if this is an overhyped space or not I definitely feel like it's overhyped and then I think the challenge for me and a bunch of other people is knowing whether, you know, it's overhyped in the short term. And the question is, in the long term, is this, you know, kind of like a pivotal shift in how the world works? Or is this going to be, you know, like a tulip bubble or something? I think most people I've talked to feel like in the short term, it's overhyped. And in the long term, there is a lot of potential value here. Yeah. And so I, th- I think it's probably, you know, in my mind, this is probably similar to like the, the crypto stuff right now. is probably similar to like the bubble of 1999, uh-huh. where... Things are really overvalued. There's a lot of hype and, you know, sort of like kind of unrealistic expectations. But on the flip side, I think, you know, in 1998 or something, if you if you ask yourself, like, I don't know, you know, if the valuations are good now, but do I think the Internet will change the world over the next 10 or 20 years? That seems like a safer bet. But, you know, if you had invested at the peak of the bubble, like 99, 2000, it would have taken you like 10 or 15 years to even get back to even with your on your money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I kind of feel that way about Less so about cryptocurrencies, but especially ICOs. I think there's a lot of regulatory risk. I think there's, it feels like companies are raising so much money. You know, we talked about like, is it important to raise too much or too little or just enough? And I think for a lot of these companies, maybe they've managed like 500 grand before they managed 2 million and suddenly they get like 300 million. I just don't know if that's, you know, if that's something people know how to, I don't know if founders can jump from that 2 million level to the 300 million level effectively i think there's just a lot of risk just purely in that right i think it's almost like being a lottery winner like i think people don't spend extremely well when they win the lottery yeah so the you know but but some of this you know i've I've heard is like the people who put in a bunch of money when bitcoin was at 12 cents and now they're just flush with cash and they can just pour money into the cryptocurrency ecosystem whether it's I like if it's ICOs at this point or if a new cryptocurrency comes out, and if there's people who have actually made enough liquidity, and those are the investors in the cryptocurrency market, that seems like it creates a bit of a different set of conditions than the 1999 bubble. Because well, I guess I don't really know. So I'm just thinking from the perspective of somebody who I have not put any money into cryptocurrencies, and I'm at this point I'm like okay. I need to put I need to put some money in with a buy and hold thesis. The question is, should I put some money in now or should I wait for a dip? And I'm a little bit worried like if I wait for a dip it's just going to keep going up and up and up. So maybe I should just buy while it's too high for now and because I'm putting in an investment on a 20-year time horizon. I don't know, I'm just trying to evaluate this from a personal perspective. Yeah, so I'm definitely not a financial advisor, but I think I think this is a place where maybe dollar cost averaging can work a little bit. So, you know, let's say you want to invest like $10,000, like instead of trying to pick the optimal time to invest $10,000, maybe you invest like $1,000 every two right. weeks for five months or something like that. Oh, okay. So 
I think that that's one approach. What was the first part of the question? No, that was it. That was it pretty much. Yeah. What about crypto hedge funds? So the hedge funds are interesting. Again, for me, it's a matter of like market timing. So, you know, I'm not sure if like buying a crypto hedge fund now is like buying a, you know, a public stock market index in like, you know, March of 2000, where, you know, it's a good long-term investment, but if you enter at the wrong time, like, you know, it, it might not be a good investment for like five or 10 years. Like in my mind, I think my gut feeling is like a crypto hedge fund would have been great a year or two ago. And it might be great a year or two from now is some of the like the dust settles and there's more regulation and there's more standards and best practices. I don't know if it's a good time now. I'm kind of skeptical that now is a good time, but it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's often very embarrassing to predict the future in a recorded yeah. setting. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's such a unique security, right? Because if you you know if you've read a lot of stuff about market psychology and market dynamics, do not get into cryptocurrency right now would be the conventional wisdom. But who knows? Maybe this is different. Maybe this is a different type of security. Maybe it's a different type of market. So I think one thing that's interesting here is like I feel like there's a lot of asymmetry on the upside and the downside. So like if you invest in Apple today, you know, worst case, you lose your money. Best case, maybe you double or triple it over like five or 10 years. I think cryptocurrencies and angel investments and venture investments, they're a little different because in worst case, you lose all your money. In the best case, maybe it goes up like a hundredfold, which you don't really see on the stock market. And so I think one good piece of advice I've heard from this pretty famous VC Chamath at Social Capital is, you know, he recommended putting like 1% of your net worth into cryptocurrencies. I think something like that seems like an interesting idea because in the worst case, you lose 1%, which sucks. But, you know, if, if it goes up like 30-fold or 100-fold over the next five years, you know, maybe that means like you've doubled your personal net worth. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's a pretty interesting piece of advice, especially if you're kind of long-term bullish on, you know, the value of cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and mm-hmm. tokens. So I want to wrap up with a little bit about SUSE and just how venture firms work from the inside. So different firms have different ways of deciding to do a deal. So some firms require consensus. All the partners have to agree. Some of them require only one partner to say yes. You can also have silver bullet policies where, let's say, normally you require consensus, but once a year, every partner gets to say, I want to do this deal, so we're all going to do this deal how do you decide on whether or not to do deals at SUSE? So we've iterated on this a lot. I think we've come out at the current stage and it might change again in the future. But where we are now is we want majority to like it. So at least you know two out of the three partners and then at least one of the partners really has to love an investment. We used to have veto votes that never got used. And this is, you know, I talked about like the asymmetric returns for cryptocurrencies. Yeah. It's the same in venture capital where you know, a typical fund might make 30 investments and 20 of them will be like 0x or 1x or 2x. And then a couple might be like 50x and it's the 50x's that matter. And so because of like, you're going to make a lot of investments that don't do well and one or two that do great, the vetoes don't work well because like blocking a bad decision is not the end of the world. But if you blocked a company that becomes 50x, like you sort of, you know, you never forget. So we had veto votes. We never used them. At some point we decided like, well, we would just kind of log what everyone thought, even if somebody really doesn't like it. But we want at least one person to love it and either the majority or everyone in the fund likes it. And we we also, this is kind of an interesting study of human psychology. We had silver bullets a couple of years ago. Again, one of those things that never got used, we decided we'd have one per fund and a fund's kind of a three or four year cycle. 
And I think what we found is, you know, for the first couple of years, nobody wanted to use theirs because they thought, well, what if I find something better in the next couple of years? And then towards the end of the fund, it was too late because like we never found anything better. (laughs) There are several ways to scale a VC firm. You can get into, you can start more funds. You can start verticalized funds. You can make bigger funds. You can get into later and later stage financing. You can build out a services firm like Andreessen Horowitz has, whether they help companies with hiring or technical decisions. Or you can just refine your deal selection. You can just get better over time, and then your returns are presumably going to go up, and they're going to scale. How do you plan to scale SUSE? Yeah, so I think we plan to do a bunch of the things you mentioned. I think the the two key ones is, are that we want to expand our team. You know, that way we can meet with more companies. We can also get kind of like different insights from different you know backgrounds and perspectives. I'm actually really excited. We just added our first investment team member a couple of weeks ago. Her name's Natalie. She comes from a different background than the three partners. So she comes more from the finance world. She worked at SVB for a while in Goldman Sachs. And I think it's been interesting because even in the first two weeks, like whenever we have meetings and, you know, she's part of them, she asks questions that are different than what we would ask. I think we learn things that we wouldn't have learned if it was like, you know, just the three original members at the meeting. So I think that's been really valuable. We want to keep expanding our team with great people. We also want to add more and more services like, like a firm like Andreessen Horowitz. I think in venture, actually, there aren't too many moats, but one of them is, you know, if you do the services model, it's not something that every fund can afford. And so kind of correlated to doing more and more services, like maybe if we were to hire an in-house recruiter or a PR person is, you know, we'd want the fund to get bigger so that we have more capital for paying for those services. And then the corollary is one of the other things you mentioned, which is bigger check sizes. And that is that as our fund does get bigger, so we can, you know, pay for more employees, pay for more services. Now we have to invest more in each company. Otherwise, you know, if we're a million dollar or a hundred million dollar fund and we put like a hundred K into a company, like no matter how good the company is, it just won't make an impact on the fund. So as the fund grows, the check sizes grow too. Hmm. Do you miss founding companies or, well, I guess running companies and, well, I guess SUSE is obviously a company. Engineering, do you miss writing code or building systems? Yeah, I I think there's definitely aspects of it I miss. I think part of it's like kind of the immediate feedback loop where you can go into a REPL or you can write, you know, like a little applet for yourself. And, you know, in a couple of hours, you could have something really useful where, you know, a couple hours ago, you had a blank slate. You don't get that much of that in VC because things just take years instead of hours. So I, I definitely miss that part of it. I think at some point when I first got into VC, I actually, I wanted to be a founder. I'd been at a couple of early stage companies where, you know, there were a dozen people when I joined, but I didn't know much about the one in 10 person stage. And I got this opportunity to join a seed fund. And I, I thought, you know, wow, what a unique opportunity. I can meet a bunch of founders in that one to 10 person stage and learn from them. And then maybe in a year or two, I'll go start a company. And I think what happened over that year or two is, one, I figured out that while I missed engineering, I think I'd missed the VC side even more because I really enjoyed talking to, you know, really smart people about their ideas, yeah. like really drilling in on their business models and their plans and their products. I think I also got, you know, felt more and more imposter syndrome where I, like the founders I met were so good that I felt like, you know, I thought I'd be decent, but I didn't know if I'd be as good as they were. And so, you know, that was like, you know, that one or two year plan was five years ago and now I'm five years in and I think it's, you know, a lifetime career. But I, th- I think what I do like, and I think this is what you see if you go to like my blog is I like thinking about a lot of venture from more of like an engineering perspective of like, you know, refactoring or caching or like trying to, you know, trying to look at things as algorithms or heuristics rather than you know, just uh, kind of like winging it. Well, it's funny. So that in poker, when I started playing poker, and this was kind of 
2005, 2006, over the next three or four years, it underwent a transition where the people who were making decisions based on feel or based on gut, based on these things that they couldn't quantify, these people just got systematically weeded out. And I just believe more and more over time that if you can't put your thesis into crisp, concise, quantified, articulated terms, it might mean that you don't actually have a thesis at all. And there's something problematic about that. So sounds like the coding VC is the is the way to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, uh, so I was into poker around the same years as you were, although okay. I, I wasn't any good at it. But uh-huh. I still remember one of the players I watched on TV was Paul Phillips. Sure. And he's like, a, I think he was a core scholar contributor for like a decade. But I remember he talked for... bald guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I remember he talked, in a couple interviews, he talked a lot about, like, he was just, like, a pot odds, implied odds calculator. He knew all these, like, probabilities, like, the back of his hand. And I think that was part of what, you know, makes some of the today's great players great is, like, they know how to bluff and all that, but they also know sort of, like, the numbers, the optimal game theory. And I think that's what makes them so hard to play against. Okay. Well, Leo, it's been great talking to you. I think we should do another show in the future. This is great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Jeff. I really appreciate you having me.